0: Right, wow, rowdy today, I like it. Okay, hey, I want to welcome all our campus ministries. Good morning in Old Town, Pastor Dwayne and that crew. Good morning up in Marin County at the Hills, Novato. Uh, Kevin, you guys, we love you. Good morning, Larry Street, all my people at Tulare Street, God bless you guys. Good morning in Selma, the Hills, Selma. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad you guys are with us. And our online community, whether you're down the street from here or around the world, we're glad you're with us today. Thank you for being with us. Uh, man, God is doing some great things. I um, The last uh, year and a half, uh, I was approached by a, 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 gr- a group, and they asked me to uh, travel the state of California, uh, training some of some, uh, pastors all over the state in um, how to create a culture of evangelism in, in your church. Uh, one of the things that's happened here at Clovis Hills is there's a great culture of evangelism, like people... You know, we come expecting to see people make a decision for Jesus. Amen, right? That's a good thing. It's kind of my expectation. And um, th- this uh, group I've been working with asked me, well, hey, can you travel up and down the state and um, te- teach these groups? So, I, you know, you do like large groups in Southern California, a couple hundred pastors. And then yesterday I was in Red Bluff, California. Does anyone know where that is? Yeah, Red Bluff. It's happening. Um, that's way up there I was like five and a half hours there's only ten pastors they're all from far Northern California too they were like Red Bluff that's Southern California you know they were way up there and I remember one guy told me um, I had gone up and taught last year and done that with a small group of pastors and he he gave me a testimony I thought this was really cool um, I forget the name of the town he pastors in but um, he drove a couple hours to see me to to you know, get trained again, and he said, hey, I, um, when I came to see you last time, it was only because the denomination I'm part of was offering a grant. I didn't really care. I just came to get the money. <laughs> I was like, well, I would too. I don't know who I am either, but um, <laughs> it's not a big deal. He goes, but I, I want you to know something. I applied what you did, and I wanna tell you about it. And I was like, oh, cool. He lives in a town that has 84 people in it. Okay, he's the only church, 84 people, He's like, you know, on Easter, if like, you know, 40 people show up, I've got almost half the town. Like, I've I've reached the city (laughs) kind of thing. And, you know, usually as a church of 20, 24, somewhere around there. And um, he goes, we never do outreach. He goes, we live in this small town in the mountains. Like, what's the point kind of thing? And I came to your thing, and I was like, well... Maybe we'll try something. You know, we got this grant, and Sean's talking about building the culture of evangelism. So I was like, all right, I'll do a one-day kind of kids uh, camp, like Bible camp, and we'll play games, and we'll do all that. And then we'll have a, um, you know, a big community barbecue, and we'll show a movie, and we'll do a, you know, he goes, I'm friends with the sheriff, so I had the sheriff come and talk, and, you know, the county sheriff's like a celebrity when you're in the town of 84, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> He goes, sure, sure sure, enough, like, I did this thing. He goes, 48 people showed up to this thing. I was like, that's awesome. I'm mean, Way to go, man. He goes, no, it gets better. He goes, there's one guy in the town that hates me. Like, he's hated me ever since, I've been here 20 years, he's hated me, just mean to me, you know. And he came with his grandkids, and, you know, we had this community de- meal. I did a little Bible study with them, and, you know, we were sitting watching the movie, and he kind of looked over at me and just stared at me and goes, you know what? I like you. You're not bad. And he goes, and that began a relationship. He goes, in the last year, him, his wife, and both his grandchildren have given their life to Christ. We haven't seen a salvation in our church in a decade. Four people in a town of 84, that's a good percentage right there. I'm telling you, like, that, like it, it, it was awesome. And see, um, Sometimes, like we take for granted, the good work that God is doing. And um, I, today, I, I want to take a, a moment and teach through the book of Nehemiah to, to remind us of this great work that we do, right? All of us, because it's not me, the pastor; it's not the staff; it's the church, and it's not the organization. Who's the church? We are campuses. We are. We are. Thank you. We are okay. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to read you out of the book of Nehemiah. I want to give you some background to what you're reading so you understand the story behind it. Um, so the Jews have this history, right, of they would follow God and God would bless them. And then life would get good because they were blessed and they'd do the slow fade away from God. And then life would get hard and they would repent and they would come back to God. And then life would be blessed and then they would fall away from God and they, they had this on-again, off-again relationship with God um, and they really feel no different than most of us, right? That's kind of, that's kind of, kind of how many, many of our lives go. But um, at a certain point, they had fall, fallen so far from God and they were into idol worship and child sacrifice and temple prostitution and f- worshiping all these fi- false gods. God is like, okay, that's it. And God allows Babylon to come in And destroy Jerusalem. It destroys the temple because they weren't worshipping God in it anyways, they were worshiping false gods. They destroy the city, they kill just about everyone, they leave the old and the frail there, they shave any woman that's left, they shave her head, leave her for dead. They take the best and the brightest: the young, the handsome, the good looking, the beautiful, the strong, the smart. They take them as slaves back to Babylon. So the Jews are in exile in Babylon. And um, th- this is a, this is a theme. Like they're they're away from Jerusalem, they're always thinking of Jerusalem. They want they want they want to get back to their home. They want to do that whole thing. And um, at somewhere along the line, after seventy years, God gives them this favor. And there's a new king. It's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore. It's uh, Cyrus of Persia. It's a new empire. And Cyrus actually sends the Jews back to rebuild the temple and uh, rebuild part of Jerusalem. So that's an awesome thing. He pays for it. He sends some of them back. They're doing that. So when they get there, here's the thing. Most of the um, the the cities and empires and kingdoms and warlords that are around that area at that time, they don't want to see Jerusalem get rebuilt. They don't want new cities popping up because that means potential competition. And it was a very violent world back then. Like if, if Jerusalem got strong, it could mean it cuts in on what they're doing, and they could come and overthrow them. So they begin attacking the people that are working on the temple, attacking the people trying to rebuild the city, um, and it's just not going well. And they're having to, you know, you know, put bricks up with a sword in their, you know, hand on their sword kind of thing, and have guards around while they're rebuilding it. And they're they're doing doing this thing. So it comes along. It's about 444 BC, and there's a new king after Cyrus. His name's Artaxerxes, and um, he has a Jew in. In Babylon, he has a Jew who is his cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer is someone that basically stands by the king and always tastes the king's wine before um, he gives it to the king. Some of you are like, I'll take that job. Um, Listen, he did that because the wine, many times people were trying to kill the king. They were trying to poison the king. So you could drink the wine and you would know if there was poison in it if you died, right? So he's the king's cupbearer. But he's always around the king. And in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah prays to God and he prays for Jerusalem. He prays that God would, would help, you know, get them back to Jerusalem, get Jerusalem rebuilt, get the temple rebuilt. All that. He prays a big prayer. He doesn't know how that's going to happen. He's just a lowly servant, a wine-tasting cup bearer. He's just just a dude, but he prays that prayer in faith. You get to Nehemiah 6, and he's there, and he had just heard that Jerusalem had been attacked again because they don't have a wall around the city. See, I back in those days, like cities put walls up because they got attacked all the time. And the better your wall was, the safer you were. The better commerce was, you could raise your children in safety, you could do do all that, right? So the wall in Jerusalem was like torn down, so marauders were coming. And and he was just like, is this ever going to happen? He was depressed. And he's just kind of standing there doing his job, just being a regular person. And Artaxerxes notices something in his countenance. He says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? And Nehemiah has the wherewithal to go, well, I mean, he's he, king's either going to get a new cupbearer and kill me, or m- maybe this is part of my prayer. And he just, he just said, I'm, I'm so sad because my people in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, they keep getting attacked, and there's no wall in the city as they're trying to rebuild the city, and it's, it, it, it's, it's an impossible thing. And Artaxerxes says, why don't you go back? Can, could you take a group back with some money and supplies and rebuild the wall? to the cupbearer. So Nehemiah says, yeah, lesson number 1, be careful what you pray for, right? We have a big God. So Nehemiah does that. He goes back to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the wall. And then as they're rebuilding the wall, then some of the some of the people are getting really upset. They don't want to see that happen because then they can't come raid raid the place. And um they, they, they're attacking and they're setting up guards around the guys that are building the wall and all that. And there's this one, and, and that's not working, right? They're still building the wall. The wall is almost all the way up. Now they're just putting the gates on all the city, right? They're at that point. And there's one dude, he's, he's an adversary. He didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. He you know, hated the Jews, all that. His name was Sanbalat. Everyone say Sanbalat. That's quite a name, isn't it? There's certain names that come back. And then there's certain names, like I doubt I'll ever meet someone named Sanbalat. Although there's probably a contrarian in the crowd that's like, I'm gonna name my kid that to smite Pastor Sean. (laughs) You have certain names though. Like last week, we baptized a a, a young girl. She had the coolest name. Her name was Glory. Glory, right? I I wish I would have named one of my kids Glory, right? That's a name that will make it back. You know, you have certain names that make it back. Sanbalat, probably not. So this guy Sanbalat, now, instead of trying to, to send troops to fight the Jews to get the wall, keep the wall from being built, he decides he's going to be sneakier. He's going to try and chop off the head. He's going to try and be like, Nehemiah, let's have, some, uh, let's have some talks. Let's have coffee. Let's talk this out. Let's work out our differences, right? And then he'll kill Nehemiah. That's kind of his, his plan. So what I'm going to read to you right now in the passage we're going to talk about comes out of Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 9. And I would love it, wherever you're at, whatever campus you're at, if you would stand in honor of God's word. When the word came to Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalot and Geshem sent me the message, "Come." Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I am carrying on a great project and cannot come down Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you. Where am I Baptist at? I am carrying on a great project. And cannot go down. Why should the work stop. While I leave it and go down to you. Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Verse 5. Then the fifth time. Sanballat sent his aid to me. With the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It's reported among the nations that Geshem says it's true, and that if Geshem says it, yeah. <laughs> that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and you've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. Now this report we'll get back to the king, so come, let's meet together. And I sent them this reply, nothing like what you're saying is happening, you're just making it up out of your head, (laughs) right? They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. This is God's word, you may be seated. I want to talk to you today about the power of unity. See, um, there's something powerful that happens when God inspires his people to take a hill, to everyone to do the same thing, to to, to accomplish a mission together. There's something about that. Um, it's, it's It's an interesting thing because human beings, we're all very autonomous creatures. We make our own choices. I do what I want, right? You have that thing in you. But but when God comes over a people and they set out together to do something, there, there's, a, there's a great power in unity. So I'm going to talk about the power in unity, the perseverance in unity, and the presence in unity. So number one, the power of unity. Unity is an interesting thing because um, in marriage, right, you can have a union that will happen and no unity. Um, if you, you think about it, right, Mar- marriage in the Bible, when people got married, right, it was a man and a woman came together the two became one flesh that is a union that is called kids earmuffs sex okay all right that is that is a union but that is not necessarily unity because see you may not be working toward the same mission you may have two individuals working towards their own mission in life their own their own building their own thing, and they're working in opposite directions, even though they live together and they're in a union together, and their finances are shared and all of that. And see, unity is when you lay down your agenda for the agenda of the, that, the people, if that makes sense. That, that's, that's what unity is. And let, let's be honest, those of you that are married, you've been in a marriage before where there was there was union, but not unity, Right? All the men are like, is this a trick question? (laughs) I'm not saying anything right now, right? So there there can be union without unity. As my my, my dad used to say, he had all these great Southern colloquialisms. He said, boy, you can tie two cats' tails together and throw them over a a telephone line. There's union, but not unity, right? (laughs) That's what some people's marriage is like, right? (laughs) You've tied two cats' tails together and put it over the clothesline. See, so unity is something, though, that whenever you decide to say, you know what, I'm laying down my agenda for the agenda of a people, right? So in in marriage, right, it would be for the agenda of my family. Like I could go make more money. I could go have a better job. I could go, you know, do this or I could do that or I could be this person or I could work out more or I could be this or that. and unity is when I say no, I'm going to lay those things down for the betterment of my family, right? That 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 that's that's what unity is. The same same thing happens in a church. It's very easy in a church that we just are like come entertain us so we can go be the church and you're not being the church, you're just being you. See, there's something really powerful though when God comes together and draws people to the same mission. So those of you that are that are new to, new to the Hills family and churches. Um, we, a year ago we set out to do something called Raise to Life. It was a two year gospel initiative. It was a giant hill we wanted to climb as a church. Where we wanted to raise up new disciples. We wanted to raise up new churches. And we wanted to raise up new buildings. And we challenged the people of this church. We said hey we want you to pray about what your part is. In taking this giant hill. Because we wanted to see 2,000 people come to Christ. 1,000 people get baptized. We wanted to plant five churches. That had nothing to do with our church. And then um, plant 10 more overseas. And um, then we also wanted to build a youth building. Here at our north campus. A fellowship area at Old Town. We wanted to remodel our Novato campus. We wanted to um, also open a reading program. At our Tulare Street campus. And we asked the church to pray. And how they could... could, um, they could serve the vision of Raised to Life and then also give toward it. And here's the crazy part. The people of this church, the members of this church, they prayed and they began to, to pledge. And they made a pledge. This is what I'm gonna give toward it over the next two years. And it was always an over and above what they were normally giving. So there were people that had never really made a, ha- a spiritual habit yet in their life. It wasn't part of their discipleship to give. And there's some people that said, I'm gonna begin regular giving. and I'll start with Raised to Life. Right, and they were developing that habit. Other people, they were regular givers. They said, I'm gonna pray about, I'm gonna keep giving my regular giving so we keep the lights on, keep the ministry going, but I'm gonna pray about what I could do over and above for two years. And then they pledged as well too. And some people, they have like a spiritual gift of giving. They're just really good at it. It doesn't mean they're rich either. Like, um, you know, if you make seven figures and you you scratch a check for, you know, $5,000, well, you know that's that's nice, but if you're a single mom and you scratch a check for 500 bucks above what you normally already give to the Lord, that's extravagant, right? It, there there's there's a it, it's qualified by what God has given you, right? So they did, and um, the members of the, this church pledged about two million dollars over and above. Right, And um, we are we're, we're so grateful, um, but we're still not there yet, right? We're still trying to do this. If you look up on our walls here in this campus, if you're not at this campus, on the walls we have how many people have accepted Christ, and it, right now it's 1,088 and 479 baptisms. It's great. It's awesome. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's actually more than that because about 10 people came forward at the 9 o'clock service, and I don't know what happened at the other campuses, right? But um, it, it's a good thing, but we're not there yet. Why should we come down when we are doing a great thing, right? That that that's 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 what's going on. So I want I want to encourage you, um. And if you you want to know more about race to life and you're you're new or or maybe you weren't part of it last year, you weren't around. Um, I would encourage you. There's these on your on your chair, and if I get boring, you can read that, or you can take it home. You can read it. You can look into it. And there's pledge cards here too. So, um. But here's what I want you to understand. Whenever the church decides to do something like that, I promise you this, there is always opposition to it. The enemy does not want us to populate heaven. The enemy does not want people to get off addictions. They don't want families to be restored. They don't want... Um, God's work, God's kingdom being established in people's homes. They don't want God's kingdom being established in their places of business. They don't want God's kingdom be, being established anywhere. So the enemy will do whatever he can to distract us from doing it. Right? The, the, this is the thing. The enemy hates you. There is a devil. The Bible says that there, there is there is a devil. He is real. He's not like sitting back in, um, in you know, in, in the, the bowels of Raider Nation wearing a, you know, a, a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork going, ah, that's not what he's doing. He's far smarter than all of us. He knows how to distract us, how to discourage us, how to keep us away. He's very good at it. As a matter of fact, one of his great deceits he's done is he's gotten most modern people to not believe he exists. So he just slowly lulls you into a sleep. Where you're, you know, you're like, life is great. I got great coffee, avocado toast. You know, there's not a ton of problems in my life, and I'll just uh, watch Netflix and gain weight till I die. <laughs> and God says, no, I have a plan for your life. I have a ministry for your life. You could be a world changer. You could be a life changer. There's people in your family that need Jesus. There's people around you that need Jesus. And the devil's like, no, no, you don't need to do that religious stuff. Let the church staff do it. You just keep doing your thing, swiping away. And Sanford and Son comes rocking. If you're watching, someone's phone went off and it was a Sanford and Son theme song, which is awesome. So, um, (laughs) But the enemy... And he doesn't just do it with wealth. Sometimes he does it with sickness. Sometimes he does it with um, tragedy in your life. Sometimes he does it with um, you know, new opportunities. And sometimes you'll take hold of the good and sacrifice the great thing that God had for you. So when in 2018 we were doing one of these called Focus 2020. And I remember um, my my wife was diagnosed with a terminal disease. And the thought was, what do we do? We're in this campaign. We're in this gospel initiative. Do we give up? And that's the thing. The devil will do that to you. He'll discourage you. He'll put things in your life. And here's what I'm here to tell you. The best thing you can do is grab hold of the feet of Jesus and double down. Because here's, here's what you need to know. We are carrying on a great project, and we cannot go down from it. Why should the work stop so I have to go down with you? That's what you need to say to the enemy today. I am carrying on a great work. So I want to bring it to number two, guys, is this. There's, you have to persevere in unity. Unity doesn't just happen easily, right? Those of you that are married, right? Unity doesn't happen easy. Can I get an amen for the married people in the room? Yeah. Yeah, the the women even more. They're like, yeah, you have no idea, right? There'll be people that criticize. When God is at work, people will criticize and go, why are you doing that when you could be doing this? Why are you doing that when you could be doing this? Why are you doing that when you're doing this? There's all kinds of things, soapboxes, that we could get on. But I want you to understand something. The soapbox we stand on is Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of the world and all who believe will be saved. There's other great soapboxes, but that is the greatest one, and we ain't getting down from it. And you can criticize it and be like, oh, they're soft. They don't care about justice or they don't care about, you know, you know, they're, they're soft on the gospel. And I'm like, soft on the gospel? We're the only church in town calling people every week to believe in Jesus. Like, there's not a lot of altar calls going on here. There's not a lot of people that like, are as bold as we would be to call people to Jesus. So you have to persevere through all that. And when God has called you to a great work, there will be people that will criticize you. There will be things that happen. Look what it says in Nehemiah 6, 6, and 7. It says, it is reported among the nations that Geshem says it's true, right? And Geshem, man, he's the authority on truth, whoever he is, that you and the Jews are plotting evil or revolt, therefore you're building a wall Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become king. And you've even appointed prophets to make a proclamation about you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. Now this report it's going to get back to the king. So come down and let's meet. Right? He's threatening. You know, I'm going to send this report to the king. I'm going to tell on you. See, and part of when you are doing a great work for God, like you have to understand something. Um, The book of Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra, those three books, those are all about the exile of Israel and then um, actually God bringing them back to, to Jerusalem right, and rebuilding Jerusalem. And the people that were rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city, I don't know if you know this, but it took them about 95 years to rebuild this little 40-acre city that was there at the time. 95 years. And here's what that means, that most of them never saw the completed thing. If you were 50 years old and you started working on the temple and you came back from exile and you were rebuilding the temple, you weren't building it so one day you could worship there. You were making the sacrifice so one day your kids would worship there. One day your grandkids would worship there. One day your great grandkids and your great great grandkids. See when God calls you to a great work it doesn't just affect you. Most of the time it's not about you it's about those who are coming after you. It's about those who are, who, are, who are coming after you. I love, um, you know, so that future generations would know God. I love the, the the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is, but man, she was smart. I'm just telling you, right? And in Hebrews 11, verses, uh, chapter 11, it talks about the hall of faith, all these great people of faith. And it goes through all the Old Testament states, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, you know... Gideon and on and on and on, right? It goes through all of those. We call the passage the Hall of Faith, right? It's like the Hall of Fame. So in verse thirteen through sixteen, um, the writer Hebrews is summing up all of these people that had done a great thing for God. And I want you to look, look look what it says. Verse thirteen, it says, "All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised." They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not a ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Here's what I want you to understand. If you wanna be part of a great work for God, you have to lay your agenda down and say, God, what is yours? What is your agenda for my life? What is your agenda for this season of my life? What is your agenda for me for the month of November? What is your agenda for me on Thanksgiving on Thursday when my family drive me crazy and I wanna poison them all? That's not God's agenda for you. (laughs) Light is an interesting thing. See, right now in all the rooms we're in, there's light emanating from all the light bulbs. What's happening is billions of photons are shooting out from all these light bulbs. And when the photons shoot out, it it activates our eyes. Our eyes are able to see images because of all the photons in the air right now. Right? But if you take light and then you focus it, it becomes a spotlight right? and it's even brighter. And if you take light and you f- really focus it, you can make a spotlight you know, a mile away. And if you take that same light, same photons, and focus it even more, it becomes a laser. And if you focus it even more, the more you focus the light, the more power the light has, that eventually it doesn't just cut through darkness, it can cut through steel, it can cut through stone, it can cut through anything. And what we're doing at Raise the Life is we're saying, guys, there's a hill we got to climb. we got to focus the light of the gospel, and let's go get these people for Jesus. It's going to require prayer. It's going to require serving. It's going to require selflessness. It's going to require giving. It's going to require all of those things. Let's focus the light. I want to show you a video of a friend of ours. She's, she's uh, down at the Tulare Street campus. She came to Christ this, this year, during Raised to Life, and I, I, I want you to understand something. Have you ever been in a, like a, a cave or somewhere that had zero light in it? It's, it's a crazy thing, because you go in a place like that, and then if your light goes out, you very quickly, even though you may know where everything is, you, your brain becomes completely discombobulated, and you don't know where anything is. You get disoriented very quick. It's just how darkness works. But it's really interesting you turn on just a itty bitty light in that dark place, everyone in the cave instantly can start reorienting themselves to where they are. That little light, and then here's here's what happens. Everyone in that darkness focuses on the light, and they begin to move towards that light. That's that's the way it works in utter darkness. I want you to wa- watch this testimony of our friend.
1: for about 15 years, off and on. Um, I did drugs January 31st of 2018. um, I woke up that morning begging God to either let me die or let me go to jail because I couldn't stop. And that was right after my $34,000 of inheritance was blown. Um, And that morning I dropped my kids off at school, stayed home all day, got high, went and picked them up from after school program at six o'clock and I pull up to my house and there's like, I don't know, 20 cops in front of my house. And I didn't know why they were there. I couldn't understand why I had a warrant. I went to jail only for a few weeks, but I went to jail, into jail with like an open heart. Like I was done, I couldn't do it anymore. I've had, I've had lost my oldest son to CPS twice. Um, he almost got adopted out. My mom, by the grace of God, was there to support me and help me and I was able to get him back. The damage I've caused with my and my husband's marriage like, put a strain on it. Majority of that marriage and that relationship was tainted by my drug use. March of 2021, March 29th of 2021, I don't know, just like a breakthrough. Like, I knew I needed to stop and I kept knowing I needed to stop. I would read my Bible on drugs. Like, I would read my Bible high because I knew I needed God. And so I couldn't find a sense of peace and I knew I just needed to stop. So one day I just got rid of everything and was done. And, and Within the week after I was in church and I just knew I needed to find a sense of peace. And I have found a sense of peace with Jesus. Like a sense of peace that I can't explain. Something that has saved me from a lifetime of misery. Shortly after that, my husband started serving on Saturdays and setting up the church. And my kids would all go like hesitantly, like they would sit in the back and play on their computers or their phones and they would tell me, everyone in church, Brandon and Sonny, and they'd always tell me, just leave them alone, they're here, that's all that matters, they're here. And um, so I did, and then shortly after, um, my 15-year-old got baptized, and that was really an emotional one for me because you know his goal in life was to be a gang member. And, and my nephew got baptized, um, my two of my nieces got baptized, Like it was just this, it's like an eruption. My mom was saved this, this weekend, my brother was saved this weekend, It's like erupted into something that I never, ever thought it would be. Everyone kept telling me, if you keep going, they'll come, they'll come, and I didn't believe it. My name's Stephanie Darrow. I've been raised alive, and I'm all in.
0: Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Stephanie's at our... um, at our Tulare Street campus right now, I believe. And uh, she's one of, she's also part of the Real Women Ministry here at North on, on Wednesday nights, um, which I would encourage any woman to sign up for and get in. It's a great discipleship program. But do you see what happens when you flick one little light on in a dark place? Like, it changes the destinies of families, possibly generations to come. The total direction Of a people can change. When the light of Jesus gets turned on. When dispersed light becomes focused. When God's people say we have a mission and we're going to accomplish it. See Jesus gave us the mission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus gave us the mission go make disciples, go make new disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. It was a, sim- it was a simple instruction. Many times we think church is about, oh, yeah, come teach me the Bible, entertain me. Thank you. That's it. That's not what the church is about. The church, we're, you, you're the church, and you're about together. We make disciples, we teach them, we baptize them. We win people to Christ. We build them up. We send them out. We get sent out. This is the mission of the church. This is what we do. And raised to life, really all we're doing is we're just focusing that light intensely for two years. Like a hard climb up a hill. A.W. Tozer said this, and I love it. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're all one accord being tuned not to each other, but to one, an- one an- another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in their heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What to- Tozer is trying to say is, If we were an instrument, there's a couple thousand of these instruments of God in the room and in rooms around right now, right? You should think about that. If each of you were an instrument and you decided you wanted to tune yourself, you wanted to tune yourself to your own key that you wanted to tune it to. You know, you're like, oh, I like this part of Jesus, but I like this part of, you know, what TikTok's telling me and oh, I like this part of Jesus but I like this part of what Fox News is telling me or oh I like Jesus but I like this part of what you know my parents have told me my whole life or or I made up or whatever it is here's what will happen one the instrument you created to be you'll be completely out of tune and we'd be all, all out of tune together it makes a horrible noise But when you decide, you know what, Jesus is my Lord, I wanna lay down my agenda, I'm not gonna do it perfect, I don't know how to do it perfectly, but I'm gonna lay down my agenda, you're tuning yourself to the one who made you. You get in tune with the one who made you. And when you have a room full of people that are all in tune with the one who made them, all in tune with the mission that he's given them, watch out, watch out, see, Nehemiah had said, I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down? We're a year into this thing raised to life. And there could be all kinds of reasons to move on to something else. It's getting old, Pastor. Come on. No, we're doing a great work for the Lord. Why should we come down? What I'm challenging you to do is to get back up on the ladder. Because it's, it, it's, it's reality, like life gets in the way and we climb down from the great work that God's given us. We get distracted, we get all of those things. And I'm telling you, there's no greater thing you could do with your life than give your life to the mission of God. It doesn't mean you have to put a loincloth in and move to Papua New Guinea. What it means is you just need to pray and ask God, what is my part? And then obey that part. See, he was so set on that mission Do you know who was also set on a mission? A truer and greater Nehemiah. I want you to think about this. Jesus, in the middle of the book of John, the gospel of John, the middle of the book. Yeah, he's been healing people. He's been feeding people. He's been teaching people. He's been doing all these great things. It says in the very middle of it, the middle chapter, he stops and it says that he set his heart on Jerusalem. And here's what that meant. He, The rest of the book of John, John documents it, that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. He set his heart on one great mission, and it was to go to Jerusalem, get arrested, and die for the sins of anyone that would believe in him. And he was not going to deviate from it. And there were people that were like... Jesus, what about this issue? What about this issue? What about this issue? And that was none of his concern. He, As a matter of fact, he shucked and jived all of it, and he went to Jerusalem. And his whole journey to Jerusalem was single purpose, single focus, to die for the sins of the world for anyone that would believe in him. And he did that for you. See, the Bible says this, that um, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that sin has separated us from God. All human beings. Right? Sin is not a popular word anymore. We don't, li- we don't like the word sin. We don't like it when um, we call certain activities sin. We don't like, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, um, popular culture has a belief that human beings are basically good. And, you know, just education and um, um, economics will make everything better. How's that been working? wealthiest society in the world, in history, and the most educated society in history. And it doesn't help this thing because our sin has separated us from our creator. And C.S. Lewis, about 100 years ago, in a sermon he, he preached called The Weight of Glory, he said it this way, he said, Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing the shy, persistent inner voice that almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found here on this earth. Here's what he meant by that: is Basically, the whole system we live in is gamed to make you think, like, you know what, you're good, you don't need God, you're good enough, you're smart enough, you got this, we can all figure this out, we can do this. But deep inside of us, there's this inner voice going, something's not right. And what it is, is it's a hole in our heart because we are not connected to our creator. And God knew that and he loved you. That's why he sent Jesus to you so that you could be connected. And the Bible says this in John 1:12: It says, but as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. What that means is you have to make that choice to receive him. I can't make it for you. Grandma can't make it for you. You have to make that choice. Some of you, you made that choice earlier in life, but you walked away from it. And there's no coincidence you're here today that the God of the universe is calling you home to him. See, Jesus also said in Revelation 3.20, he uses this analogy. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone listens, I will come in. That is the God of the universe standing at the door of your heart, wanting a relationship with you, wanting to forgive your sin, wanting to connect you back to him, wanting to give you a mission in your life, wanting to give you you so much more than, than what the world can offer, but you have to have the courage to open it and invite him in. And no one can make that decision but you. In a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to. And all you have to do is pray. Just invite him in. You don't have to pray. There's not a magic prayer. You know, you don't have to be like, you know, sometimes people think like prayer, like, you have to put on your prayer voice and you have to talk to God. Like, no, you can do it silently in your heart. But you need to, like, you have to make that call. We can't do it for you. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. There's a couple couple different people in the room, a couple different types of people in all the rooms actually that that, that I think you need to think about what you want to talk to God about. Some of you, um, you got convinced to come down off the ladder. You're like Nehemiah, but they talked you down because of something going on in life. There's a great work for you to climb back up on. Some of you this morning, you walked away from Christ at some point in your life and God loves you and he's calling you home today. And today, you probably, it's a prayer of recommitment to him. And then others of you, this is the first time this has ever made sense to you. That's called the Holy Spirit. He's illuminated your heart. And you sense Jesus knocking at the door of your heart. You need to be courageous and invite him in. So let's pray. Let's just bow our heads.